A few people have asked me who is Creation Ministries International, so I'll answer that question right off the bat. We literally are international. We have offices in seven countries on five continents. We were founded over 40 years ago. We speak in over 1,000 churches worldwide, and we employ more PhD scientists than any ministry in the world. But that's not what we're about. It's not about science, and let me explain that to you. How many of you, when you've been out sharing your faith, have had people challenge you with questions like this? Well, what about dinosaurs? You know, uh, how, how, did, how did all the animals fit on the ark? Hasn't evolution been proven by science showing that the Bible is not true? And did God, if he did, how did he create in six days? Is that true? What about ape men? Where did all the races come from? And why does a loving God allow death and suffering? Now do me a favor. If you've had people challenge you with questions like that, would you put your hand in the air? Now look around the room. That's what our ministry is about, is in order to give you scientifically accurate as well as biblically accurate answers to those and many more questions. And you can find the answers to those questions on our website, but our website address is kind of hard to remember, so I'm going to use a little science to help you with that. Is that okay? All right. I don't know if you know this, but scientists have proven that if you say something out loud audibly with your mouth, you're more apt to have it imprinted into your brain. Did you guys know that? Okay, so would you all join me in saying this together, please? Creation.com. Can you remember that? All right. Well, if you were to go there this afternoon, you'd find over 13,000 articles written by our scientists and professionals over the last 40 years, answering those and many, many more questions. For example, you guys know this fellow, right? We got some tragic news a number of years ago. What happened? And how did he die? A stingray stung him in the heart. And so skeptics challenged us and wrote into our ministry and they said, oh yeah, well, why would a loving God create stingrays that can kill? Ha! Well, we decided to answer that question and wrote this article giving a biblical and scientific answer to that question. And in only 10 days, it became our most visited article ever. And the reason is, it's because believers like you Seeing the answer, we're forwarding it on to their family and friends, both believers and non-believers, showing them that there are answers to the questions. And is it true in the news we hear all the time about the latest dinosaur discovery or maybe that missing link between ape and men that proves evolution is true? Have you guys seen those? It's every week. Well, we're writing an article that will help you answer those questions to those people maybe that you work with or that are in your neighborhoods, or perhaps even your children and grandchildren. So if you guys want to be part of our ministry, I'd like to invite everyone here to sign up for our free email newsletter. It only comes out about once a week, so we're not going to be spamming you, but we're going to keep you up to date on the latest information on creation and evolution. So if my volunteers could distribute those uh, sign-up sheets evenly right now, and if you guys would do me a favor and just pass them back so everybody gets a chance, I would appreciate it. But how many people here know that kids hear about evolution 24-7? You know, it's not just in school. It's feature films, it's books, it's magazines, even Sunday or Saturday morning cartoons. That paradigm, that worldview of evolution is pushed on our children. And we need to have an answer. And you can find those answers again where, everybody? All right, let's go ahead and get started with the presentation. Now, I'm actually from California. I hope you don't hold that against me. But I want to let you know, 
I'm not a native of California. I moved there uh, after I married my California bride. But I had to adapt to my environment because that's what any good organism does, right? <laughs> and in order to prove to you that I did, here's me catching a wicked 12-inch wave, all right? <laughs> Luckily, I have a graphic artist that works for me that makes me look a little bit more macho than I actually am. <laughs> but I would like to introduce you to my friend Sammy. Sammy is what you, he's a real man. I don't know, do we have any of those here this morning? <laughs> Apparently not. Okay, in any case, um, Sammy is... Uh, is a native of California, he loves to surf, he loves the beach, but get this, he's also a professional California beach lifeguard. Now, many years ago, he was, uh, it, he was assigned to Pismo Beach, and it was his day off, and he was riding his quad up and down sand dunes, enjoying his time, yet when the sun hit the Pacific Ocean, he knew it was time to go back to camp in order to rest up for his next day's work. However, when he came to this very spot on the beach, there were 12 people in the darkness yelling and waving their arms to get his attention. So he drove over there, and when he turned off his engine, he found out what the concern was. Because you see, there was a surfer that was 100 yards off of the coast. His surfboard was there on the beach, but he was screaming in pain because there were waves with eight-foot faces picking up his body and throwing him in the lava rock below. And he was severely lacerated from head to toe, crying for help. So Sammy decided to take off his helmet and his boots and those things that would weigh him down. And in that surf, he was able to navigate his way through a riptide and was able to get to that man and brought him back to the uh, shore and saved his life. But let me ask everyone here a question. Why did he do it while the 12 people just stood there and watched? Why? Fear is part of it, but you know what? He was trained and equipped on how to navigate through those waves. So his fear was, was, uh, was not as great. So he went out and did that because he knew what he was doing. But you know, I think our culture is kind of like the surf. Like those waves pounding down or like those questions that we're talking about this morning. Like, is there a God? Does he love me? And is the Bible true? And am I right that in our culture, that last question has been answered with a resounding no? Because most people believe that science has proven that evolution and its millions of years are a fact. And if that's the case, the Bible can't also be true. I believe it's like a tsunami that are pulling people away from the solid rock of God's word. But I have a question I'd like to start out with today. And that is, are you willing to equip and train yourself with the answers to those tough questions that people are asking us to defend our faith so that you can be the one that dives in and rescues the perishing while perhaps others just stand by and watch. You know, 1 Peter 3.15 says, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. Now, does this sound like a suggestion or a command? It's a command for every believer. And by the way, this word answer comes from a Greek word, apologian, which was a legal term used in the courts of law in order to describe what an attorney would do in order to uh, prosecute the accused or defend, uh, prosecute the accused or defend their client using a reasoned, rational, and logical 
defense. So this morning, does this sound like you? Are you always prepared with that defense? Including in the area of creation and evolution, which is the biggest excuse people use for not believing the Bible in the first place. So that's the question that we want to deal with today. We're going to talk a little bit about science. I don't know if you guys, if you didn't like science in junior high school, I want to let you know I'm not going to make it too hard to understand, okay? But it is an important issue. Now we're here to talk about the Bible. So are there any scientific statements in the Bible? Actually, in the very first chapter of the first book of the Bible, Genesis chapter 1, there's a phrase that is repeated 10 times. It says, God created plants and animals to reproduce after their what? Kind. Now, that basically means dogs give birth to dogs, pigs give birth to pigs, and a corn kernel will bring us a corn plant. Does that happen here in Arizona too? Yeah, it's consistent. You see, we can test this over and over and over again. However, am I right that most people have heard a very different story than that? Most people have heard that over millions and millions and millions of years, through the process of natural selection and random mutations, that one kind of animal can change into a completely different kind of animal given enough millions of years. Now, you guys have heard that, right? But do you see the difference between these two different worldviews? They're diametrically opposed. And you know what? Our kids see the contradiction. You know, if the teacher is going to sit there and say, all right, now, what we're talking about in science class is science. And if you happen to be one of those people that believe the Bible, I won't hold that against you. You can go ahead and believe your religious beliefs. That's fine. But I want to let you know, here in science class, we're going to talk about science. Now, do you see the decision that has to be made? And it's not just by our kids, am I right? I mean, does anyone here maybe have a relative that doesn't know the Lord, that has struggled with this whole thing? That's why we need to be prepared with a reasoned, rational, logical defense for our faith. And if we don't, what's going to happen? You know, perhaps you've heard the Barnett Institute statistics that say that two-thirds of children raised in Christian homes by the time they get to be the age 18 are leaving the faith. That's kind of a sobering statistic, isn't it? And of course, we're talking about somebody else's kids, not ours, right? And to be fair, other organizations did surveys and came up with completely different percentages of those leaving the faith. But can I ask you a question? Which percentage would be acceptable to you and your family? Yeah, we went on to uh, college campuses here in the United States and made this a short documentary where we asked students questions. We first asked, we only asked students that had regularly attended church in the past. Okay. We first found that group. And then we asked if they believed in creation or evolution. Not surprisingly, the vast majority said they believed in evolution. But then we had a follow-up question. We said, have you ever been given any evidence that supports the historical account of the Bible? And every single one of those dozens of students said no, except for one young man. However, of the five, and only five students that said that they believed in creation, we asked if they had been given evidence of the historical account of the Bible. And they all unanimously agreed and were enthusiastic in their response. So I hope you can see 
why we need to be equipped with an answer. It's a kingdom issue. It has to do with the salvation of the people that we're sharing the gospel with, or perhaps they're even in our very own homes. Jesus himself, he said, I've spoken to you of earthly things and you do not believe. How then will you believe when I speak of heavenly things? That's why we're here today. That is why CMI employs more PhD scientists than any ministry in the world. It's in order to give you a scientifically accurate, but yet easy to understand answer that's also biblically accurate. Now, like I said, we're going to talk about science a little bit. But there's one thing I need to make sure you really understand about even the term science. Because there's a lot of misunderstandings about what science means. Because there's actually two very different kinds of science. You see, on the one hand, what we have is called operational science. And perhaps when you were in high school, you might have used the scientific method. Do any of you remember doing that? Remember, you develop a hypothesis, you perform an experiment, you make observations, you record data, and you can repeat it. Do you guys remember scientific method? You know, for example, let's say that someone here did not believe in the law of gravity. Okay, we could actually do an experiment. We could make observations, record data, and we could repeat it until we established whether that law is true. Uh, Operational science is the kind of science that's done in the present right before our eyes. We can make observations, record data, and repeat. We could repeat it again. It's the kind of science that gives us inventions that benefit us all, traveling to the moon, or even medical advances that benefit us all. However... When we're talking about evolution, or for that matter, anything that happened in the past, did you know it's not this kind of science? See, what we're talking about then is historic, or what some people call forensic science. Now, let's say in the same way someone here believed that a fish, over millions and millions of years of passing on its genetic information to future generations through the process of natural selection and random mutations, would eventually, one of its offspring, would develop new novel structures that would allow it to walk up onto land. Okay, now, if you believe that to be true, can you do an experiment to prove that's the case? Can you observe it happening? Is it repeatable? See how it's a different thing? For example, this is a fossil. All right, let me ask you a question. Does this fossil exist in the past or the present? Okay, I heard different answers. So let me see if I can clarify the question a little bit more, okay? Does this fossil, this one right here, okay, that I'm holding in my hand now, does this fossil exist in the past or the present? It's in the present. And you know, when we dig up a fossil, tell me, Does it come with a label on it that tells us how old it is or what it ate or where it came from? No. What we have to do is we have to take the evidence that's with us in the present and we paint a picture of what happened in the past. Now, here's here's something I'd like everybody to vote on with a show of hands, and that is who has the most evidence, evolution or creation? How, How many people say evolution has the most evidence? Okay. How many people say creation has the most evidence? Okay. Uh, Can I give you a follow-up question. Um, When paleontologists are looking at the fossil record that's available in the museums around the world and in the various paleontological digs, do the creation scientists and the evolutionary scientists, do they have the same or different evidence to observe in the present? Same. Same. When an astronomer might be looking at it through his telescope at a 
at distant galaxies and seeing using his mass spectrometer. Do the creation scientists or the evolutionary scientists, do they have the same or different evidence to observe in the present? Now let me ask you the question again. Who has the most evidence, evolution or creation? Okay, some of you are getting it, but I see some deer in the headlights looks from some of you. So let's go ahead and do our own little experiment. Take a look at this fact. Draw your conclusions, make observations. If you'd like to record data, you may do that as well. Here's the hypothesis that I would like you to consider. What was this originally or what's missing? I'm going to make it easier. I'm going to make it multiple choice. How many people think it was A? How about B? C? Not one optimist in this crowd, apparently. Okay, how about D? How many people think it was D? Okay, you want to know the answer? Now, I want you to think about this before you respond. Why did you look for something missing? Because I told you to look for something missing. What I did is I gave you what we call in science, I gave you a presupposition. That's an assumption that you would use before looking at the evidence. And I want to let you know that all scientists have presuppositions. You might call it a bias. Okay? And they come up with conclusions. But the most important thing that I'm going to say this morning, I'm going to say here, especially if there are students in the room, listen up. Because I want you to remember this not for weeks, months, years, but decades. And that is that when you're watching a program on evolution, you are not being given facts. You're being given an interpretation of facts that's based on a presupposition that in the case of evolution has some real scientific problems. And we need to be like the Bereans. Do you guys remember them in the Bible? They want to know what are the facts and we need to dig and find out what they really are. Historic science is like that television show CSI. And I don't know if uh, Pastor Jim allows you to watch such programs. I I only do it for research purposes myself, but in case you haven't seen the uh, show, there are uh, scientists that are, that are finding and, and uh, coming up with facts and evidence about a crime that happened in the past. The facts and evidence are presented into a courtroom and two opposing attorneys tell two different stories based on the exact same facts. One attorney is saying, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, you've seen the facts and evidence. Clearly, my client is innocent. You could see that, right? The other attorney says, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, I don't know what facts of evidence he's talking about because clearly we can see that he's guilty. And this one's saying, no, wait, wait, wait. He's misinterpreting the, uh, the facts. And this one's saying, no, no, he's misinterpreting. But it's up to the jury to decide which, which, uh, which story makes the most sense, right? Two opposing interpretations of the exact same facts. But folks, in this case, in the creation and evolution debate, am I right that most people have only heard one side of the story? And if that's the case, when it comes to your neighbors, your coworkers, or for that matter, maybe your children or grandchildren, who will tell them the other side? Well, we're going to take a look at a little bit of observational scientific evidence that makes sense of the historical account of the Bible. And I'm going to start out with an icon of evolution in millions of years, one that's not too far from home, the Grand Canyon, which gives me an excellent opportunity to slip in a family vacation shot. But, of course, if you were to go to the Grand Canyon today, you would be told it took millions and millions of years for those layers to be laid down, right? And millions of years for them to be eroded. Now, indeed, when we look at the process of sedimentation, 
What we observe in the present is that those layers do form very slowly. So, if what we observe in the present is what's always happened in the past, then I would grant you it had to have taken millions of years. However, did you know that we have big, massive layers, not just at the Grand Canyon, but everywhere in the world? In fact, no matter where you go, if you start digging, you're going to find massive layers like this. And it turns out that the evidence is overwhelming that these massive layers were laid down by water. And guess what we find inside those layers? So let me ask you a question this morning. Can you think of any historical event in the Bible that might explain massive sedimentary layers laid down by water covering the entire earth, including the evidence of dead things? Does anything come to mind? And I had a young man come up to me and he said, you've got to be kidding. You guys consider yourself to be scientific and yet you believe the Bible's account of a worldwide flood that covered all the mountains? And how do you answer a question like that? Well, I get excited. Well, I want to say more than yes. I want to show them this. You see, you remember from junior high school, 70% of our planet is covered by extremely deep oceans. But did you know this? If you were able to take the mountains and the continents and push them down and raise the ocean basins up and make this planet like a perfect sphere, just like a basketball, did you know that there would be almost two miles of water covering this planet with just the water that's in the ocean basins today? Now, does that sound like enough water for a cataclysmic worldwide flood like the Bible tells us about? But you know what? It's even more exciting than that. Because you see, in the sedimentary layers of the highest mountains in the world, including Mount Everest, we find fossilized marine invertebrates. That's clams and crabs. Indicating that those layers, now at the top of the highest mountains in the world, were one time underneath the oceans, just like God's word has been telling us all along. So, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, you see the evidence supports the historical account of the Bible. Now, speaking of those layers taking millions of years, how about this? Here's 24 feet of thousands of fine layers of rock. Now, did these take millions of years? You would think maybe at least thousands, right? However, in this case, these layers were laid down in three hours. On June 12, 1980, right after the eruption of Mount St. Helens, which made a little impact on me since I was 63 miles from the volcano when it erupted, And this is just a very small sample of the three inches of ash that was put in my parents' front yard. Also an excellent opportunity to slip in yet another family vacation shot. (laughs) But if you were to go to uh, Mount St. Helens today, you would find this canyon. Now, folks, this canyon is huge. It's 140th the scale of the Grand Canyon. And if you weren't there, you might reasonably assume that that little bitty river took a really long time to cover through those layers or cut through those layers of rock, but you would actually be wrong because this canyon was formed in only one day. March 19th, 1982, after a flow came through here at highway speed, cutting through the then soft layers, which only years later had turned to stone. Does it remind you of anything else you've seen before? Observational science shows that the historical account of the Bible is true. 
Now, that same young man that challenged me about the water, he said, wait, you keep talking about fossils and you say you're scientific, but everybody knows it takes millions of years to form a fossil. Ha, gotcha. So how do you answer a question like that? Well, I get excited because then we can talk about where fossils come from. Now, normally, if you were to open up a textbook or go to a museum, you would typically be told that Mr. Dinosaur dies and sinks to the bottom of the ocean, is slowly buried over millions and millions of years. And then through the process of permineralization, which they would say takes millions of years, was turned to stone until some paleontologist uncovers him or maybe an erosional event shows these dinosaur bones. Now, I will admit at one time, this explanation made sense to me. But is this what we observe in the real world? You see, a number of years ago, I took my daughter to Walmart and I bought her two goldfish and she named them Romeo and Juliet. Now that was Thursday. It was only two days later, Saturday morning, 5 a.m. I hear her yelling in her room, daddy, daddy, come here quick. Now, I want to let you know at 5 a.m. on a Saturday morning, I'm a very patient, gentle father. So I came into her room and I said, what? And she goes, look, Daddy, Romeo is kissing Juliet. (laughs) And being a more objective observer than she, I looked in closer and corrected her and said, no, honey, actually, Romeo is uh, eating Juliet. Poor, poor Juliet. And if any of you have fish tanks at home, if one of your precious fish die, where do you find it? Floating on top. If you don't believe me, you can do an experiment this afternoon. Get a drop of cyanide. Put, no, don't do that. Don't do that. Because this is what you're going to find. All right? And when we're watching a high-definition documentary of ocean life, is it true that when the cameras come on the bottom of the ocean, we see thousands of sea creatures lying there in, in the bottom, completely intact, waiting to be slowly buried over millions of years? No. So you see, what I had to do is if I wanted to make a fossil of my daughter's remaining goldfish, What I had to do was get a shovel of concrete, sneak into her room in the middle of the night, and throw it in there really quick. No, I didn't do that. I'm kidding. I'm not that mean. But but is there any evidence that shows us that the only way we can get a fossil is through rapid, catastrophic burial like we would have in a worldwide flood like the Bible tells us about? Well, take a look at this. Here's a fish that was buried so quickly it was caught right in the middle of having lunch. Or how about this? Here's an ichthyosaur in the process of giving birth. Now, ladies, I've heard stories of really long labors, but really millions of years. How about this? Here's a hat that was buried for only 20 years. You might say it evolved from a soft hat into a hard hat. In this case, here is a bag of flour after only about a decade turned to stone, or in this case, this teddy bear was turned into rock in three to five months. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, do you see the evidence? It supports the historical account of the Bible. Now, I'd like to take just a brief little uh, pause here and ask you, I just gave you some examples of of things you could share with other people. Was I speaking over anybody's head? I mean, did you guys understand those examples, right? I just want to encourage you, you can learn this information and share it with family and friends, co-workers, fellow students, and show them that the Bible is true. You can get equipped with this information. It's not hard to do. All right, but before I go too much, you've heard me talk about millions of years a number of times, and I know a lot of people just think, I mean, what's the big deal about millions of years? I mean, after all, 
the Bible is a book of morality. Shouldn't we just stick with important doctrines of the Bible? But do you think if we added millions of years into the Bible, it might impact an important doctrine? Well, let's take a look at that. As you probably aware, there are genealogies throughout the Bible, both the Old Testament and the New Testament. God must think they're pretty important. They show that Jesus is a direct descendant of Adam. And notice in the Old Testament, it says that so-and-so was so old when his son was born, and he was so old when his son was born, and he was so old when his son was born. You can just add up those generations, and you'll get a reliable time span from Adam all the way up to Abraham. Would you agree with me so far? Now, notice after Abraham, God talks about time all the time. He talks about in the reign of King so-and-so, this happened, and the prophet did this, and in this year, he did this and this. We can actually, using the Bible, we can actually come up with a very accurate time span from Adam all the way up to Jesus. Would you agree with me so far? Because we know all the events that happened during that time span. But if we believed that millions of years are okay, and we want to fit them in the Bible, can we squeeze them between Adam and Jesus, logically? No. So you know what a lot of people do, right? They say each day in Genesis represents millions of years. Have you guys heard that? It's very popular. In fact, I want to let you know that if you do take that view, there is some very serious theological problems with them, and I'm holding one of them in my hand right here. Because you see, if these fossils in those sedimentary layers that they say took millions of years, these are dead things. And that would mean that if you say each day in Genesis represents millions of years, you have death before the fall. Death before Adam. Death before the curse. Now, does it sound like we might be touching on an important doctrine? Let's take a look at that even a little further. You see, in the last verse of Genesis chapter 1, God said for his seventh time, he said it wasn't that his creation wasn't just good. He said it was what? Very good. So what does a very good world look like? Well, check this out. Just a couple verses earlier, God said, I give you plants for food. So not to disappoint anybody here, but that means in that perfect paradise where there was no death, there was also no barbecue. But notice, in the, next, in the next verse, he gives the animals the same command. He said, I give you plants for food. So if we're taking the Bible as it's plainly written, both man and animal were what? Vegetarian, which, by the way, comes from an ancient Hebrew term that means bad hunter. I'm no, just kidding. In case you feel guilty because you had a hamburger last night for dinner, which I happen to have, just know that later on, it's okay. God told you, just as I gave you green plants, I now give you everything for food, which some people use as biblical justification to eat things like this. <laughs> but you've got to understand a very good world. You see, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and it was a perfect paradise. There was no death, no disease, no pain, no suffering. We were created to live with our creator in perfect harmony. But many of you know we don't live in a world like that anymore, do we? That's because God commanded Adam. He said that when you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will surely, what? Die. You see, we worship a loving God, but he's also a just God. 
And there needs to be a penalty for disobedience. And in this case, God clearly shows that it is physical death. It's kind of hard for us to imagine a world like that, where everything was perfect, isn't it? But God sent a rescue mission, didn't he? He sent his own son who died on a cross to pay the penalty for our sin so that in the end, have you guys heard about this? God's going to create a new heavens and a new earth. And there's going to be no more sorrow, no more disease, no more pain. Is anybody else looking forward to that? But folks, if you trust in that as the end, we need to trust in what God told us in the beginning. It was a perfect paradise. Not one that was built on layers and layers of millions of years of destruction and death. No, that was caused by the flood, not by something before. Because how could God call that very good? Some of the fossils have evidence of cancer. Does anybody think cancer is very good? So, no death before the fall. Does that make sense? And if you don't think it's important, can we take the word of an atheist for it? Wait, this atheist in a debate with a Christian said this. He said, the most devastating thing, though, that biology did to Christianity was the discovery of biological evolution. This atheist said, now that we know that Adam and Eve were never real people, the central myth of Christianity is destroyed. He said, if there never was an Adam and Eve, then there never was original sin. And if there never was original sin, there's no need of salvation. And guess what? If there's no need of salvation, there's no need of a savior. So I submit that puts Jesus, historical or otherwise, into the ranks of the unemployed. I think evolution is absolutely the death knell of Christianity. And on that point, this atheist is correct. So I hope you can see how important it is. And, and I've had a lot of people say, you know, what, what's the big deal about millions of years? I mean, we shouldn't cause division in the church. But How about this guy? He caused a bit of division in the church, didn't he? Let's hear what he had to say on the subject. He said, when Moses writes that God created heaven and earth, whatever is in them in six days, if you cannot understand how this could have been done in six days, then please grant the Holy Spirit the honor of being more learned than you are. For you are to deal with scripture in such a way that you bear in mind that God himself says what is written. But since God is... But since God is speaking, it is not fitting for you wantonly to turn his word in the direction you wish to go. Now, the nature of our culture might be better stated by a more modern theologian that you're familiar with. When he said, they used to hang the whole thing on one hook. If you don't do these things, if you don't act morally, you're going to burn in hell. But listen to what he said next. He said, unfortunately, with what we know about science... Anyone who thinks at all probably doesn't believe in that fire and brimstone stuff anymore. So organized religion, you Christians, you have lost your voice to hold up your moral hand. He's saying, now that evolution has been proven to be scientifically true and stands against the biological uh, and geological and historical truths that are in the Bible, that means you Christians have no right to tell me how to live my life. Because if those things aren't true, then the morality contained in the same biblical text is therefore also wrong. So I'm going to live my life the way I want to. You guys can live your life the way you want to. That way, 
you'll be okay and I'll be. Oh, wait. Am I going to be okay in a biblical sense? But do you see how this is a reflection of our culture of people not even beginning to accept the word of God? And folks, we need to demolish arguments like that that are stood up against the word of God and people coming to know Christ. I hope you can see that. Well, we've only covered a few things today. There's so many more questions that people deal with. And we need answers in all of these areas. I hope you don't mind me being very practical right now. I mean, do any of you have unsaved family members or maybe neighbors, friends? And, And how many people here know that there's a war going on for their souls right now waging? And, and if that's the case, do we go into battle unarmed? You know, right here, we're commanded to have a defense for our faith. And that would include in the evolution creation issue, which is the biggest place where people say the Bible isn't true. That's the biggest excuse. If you've been evangelizing, that's the one they're going to they're say, well, I'm a person of science. It's cool to say, well, so am I. And give them some answers that would give them hope to help them understand the Bible is true. Now, Like I said, I want to be practical. I I only remember about 10% of sermons for 10 minutes and then it's gone. And I know that's not true with Pastor Jim. You guys remember what he's saying. But let me ask you this. If you watch a recording like you have online, right? If you watch the message a second or third time, would you understand the information in a deeper and better way, right? So that's the practicalness I'd like to share with you. Now, many of you, when coming in, you did see that we have resources here. We don't bring them to to fund our ministry. Our publication costs probably are equal to what we have to sell them for. But the reason we bring those is to equip believers around the world for the gospel. What I mean by that is since so many people reject the word of God based on scientific evolution, it is our command to show them otherwise. So I want to summarize just one particular resource where we get more testimonies of people coming to know Christ more than any other, and that is Creation Magazine. Okay, this has been around 40 years. It's the most read publication of its kind in the world, 120 countries. It's translated into a number of languages, Um, 56 pages with no advertising. And I don't know if you took advertising out of your magazines at home, but would you have 56 pages left? But what's left in here isn't just a good recipe for butternut squash. This is information that will, that will help you get equipped for the sake of your children and grandchildren as well as those people you work with. It comes out quarterly. and so. Uh, but in addition to that, you'll also get a monthly newsletter. Um, so every month you'll get articles sent to you. In addition to that, on up to five devices like uh, iPads and, and tablets, you'll be able to get a digital copy of the exact same magazine so everybody in your family can be equipped with this. So if you do a one-year subscription today, you'll be able to take home the current issue with you and start reading it this afternoon. If you do a two-year subscription, you'll not only get the, the other issue, but you'll also get two DVDs, this award-winning documentary that, that covers D- uh, Darwin on his trip to the Galapagos. You will not be embarrassed to sh- uh, show this movie to uh, non-believers. It's very high quality. As well as that other documentary I mentioned before, where you can see these students in their own words tell you why they left or remained in the faith and answers you can have. 
So momentarily, we're going to circulate a, a form that you guys can fill out in order to get a subscription. So all we need to do is, is uh, go ahead and fill in your information and take that back to the tables, and we'll go ahead and get your, your free gifts. If you do subscribe to four uh, magazines as gifts, you get your own free, so keep that in mind. So if you guys could do that now, I would appreciate it. And again, will you guys pass those back? But while those are going around, I'm going to give you two examples of information that's in the magazine. How many people here have heard that carbon dating proves millions of years? Okay. Well, radioisotope dating is a bit more complex than that, but let me give an example. A sample from a volcanic lava dome was sent to a potassium-argon dating lab, and they tested it, and they got an age of 350,000 years. Then they took a mineral from that same sample, but this time they got a different age, 900. Then they took another mineral, and look, a different age. Same sample, sent to the same potassium-argon dating lab with all these different dates. So which one do you guys think is correct? You are right. This is the actual age of that, of that sample. And the reason we know that is it became from the Mount St. Helens volcanic lava dome. And at the time, it was only 10 years old. So if we have dates of rocks when we know the age that are completely wrong, does that bring into question the assumptions that scientists use when they use it on rocks when they don't know the age? It cool to see, can you see yourself sharing this kind of information? And then one more thing. Tonight we're going to talk about dinosaurs, okay? And uh, I think it's at 6 o'clock, so do come back. If you do, I want to let you know, especially if you're a kid, you can touch an authentic, real, fossilized dinosaur egg. You'll never probably be able to do that in your life because they don't let you do that in museums. But here, you'll get to do it. So come back for that. But I want to tell you one really exciting thing that they discovered about dinosaurs. Dr. Mary Schweitzer, at the time at Montana State University, made a discovery beyond belief. She found red blood cells in dinosaur bones. And listen how she reacted. She said, I got goosebumps. It was exactly like looking at a slice of modern bone. But of course, I couldn't believe it. I said to the lab technician, the bones, after all, they are 65 million years old. How could blood cells survive that long? You know what? That's a really good question. But you know what? Later on, they dissolved the bony matrix, and they found transparent blood vessels with liquid contents, as well as stretchable fibrous tissue. Does this look 65 million years old to you? And listen to how she responded. And by the way, that experiment has been repeated dozens of times. She said it was totally shocking. I didn't believe it until we'd done it 17 times. Do you guys remember when we were talking about operational science? Done in the laboratory right before the eyes and repeated, but she couldn't believe it. You know what? I don't blame her. Because sometimes when your worldview is so strong, it's hard to let go. So I hope you can see how you can get equipped with exciting information you can share. Please, we want you to spread the word to do that. I have two pastor's packs. If you happen to be going to another church or you, you know of another church that might benefit by one of our CMI speakers, we don't charge a fee. So love to give you that pack that you could maybe share with uh, another pastor. And you can find the answers where again, everybody? Okay, besides the magazine, I'm just going to feature just a couple few things. One is the starter pack, which has three things in it. The answers book, 
which answers the 60 most asked questions on this subject in an easy to understand way, including my favorite question, where did Cain get his, when did Cain get his wife when he wasn't able? Also, refuting evolution. This is the biggest selling creation book of all time. And it goes through what is taught in public schools and shows how it can't be true. I think the biggest and best thing that we've done in our 40 years is this documentary, Evolution's Achilles Heel, featuring 15 PhD scientists demolishing the whole foundation of evolution. It's very effective if you have somebody that doesn't believe, uh, that believes evolution is a fact. This is a good, solid, gentle way that you can use in order to try to show them elsewhere. Also, uh, somebody in the church already bought one of these. It's a 12-part classroom set. But if you want to do it in a small group in your home, that's available. But see, 20 years ago, resources like this didn't even exist. And I think right now is an exciting time to be a Christian, sharing our faith and coming up with a defense. But I'd like to conclude with the question that we started with today. And that is, Are you willing to train and equip yourself with the answers to the tough questions, the challenges that we face from unbelievers so that you can be the one that dives in and rescues the perishing while perhaps others stand by and watch so that you can fulfill this command to always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. All right. Thank you guys very much.